What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of sketchnoting, mathematics, and writing. First, we'll hear from author Tani McGregor, an expert on sketchnoting. Then we'll talk with Professor Elisa Belliston about helping our children with math. Our last guest will be author Lauren Wolk to talk about her books and how she became an author. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a story time reading from a Christmas classic, and we'll explore holiday traditions from around the world. But before all that, let's step into my world. Rachel's Here at Rachel's World, we realize that there is something fundamentally basic about an alphabet book. We see young children begin their exploration of the wonderful world of words with breaking them down into their component parts. So there is little wonder that we start with our ABCs. This form is so fundamental that it has long been a staple of children's books. In fact, the Orbis Pictus, which is generally considered to be the first book for children, has among its first pages an outline of the Latin alphabet illustrated with pictures of animals and humans. These early alphabet books, and some of those still published today, intend to teach children about language by instructing them in language's most basic component, phonics. However, due to the complexity of language and language sounds, alphabet books are really not suited for teaching phonics. Take, for example, a book with a picture of a bee intending to invoke I for insect. So in the end, I prefer to look at alphabet books as ways to creatively engage children with language and the world around them. One of my favorites that does just that is Alligators All Around by Maurice Sendak. Probably one of the most recognizable children's illustrators, Sendak's work, particularly his book Where the Wild Things Are, is known by millions of children and adults alike. But many may not be familiar with this alphabet book. Alligators All Around is one of my all-time favorite alphabet books because of the playful way it uses language. Sendak chooses to use phrases to illustrate each letter, thus ramping up the complexity of words he must pick to illustrate a letter. Each spells out an action with a delightfully poetic rhythm that is emphasized by the fact that the text of this book became part of the musical Really Rosie, which is based on Sendak's nutshell library and composed by the talented Carol King. Sadly, Sendak fails to completely hit the target when it comes to letters like X and Z, but he can be forgiven for these letters along with Q are the most difficult for any alphabet book. Even with these little slips, Sendak really dives into the whole alphabet with vigor, using all the parts of language to illustrate the letters, which is another great jumping off point for children to explore in their own writing so they can see just how many words with the same letter they can combine to make grammatically correct and coherent sentences. Rachel's Word. 
Sometimes written off as another form of doodling, sketchnoting is actually a valuable form of note-taking and communication. Today, we have teacher, reader, and writer Tani McGregor on the phone to talk about sketchnoting, what it is, and why it's important. Welcome, Tani. Hi, I'm so happy to be with you. I am so excited to have you here with us today. I was so honored to have you come and present at a conference that I attended, and I was enamored of what you had to present, so much so that I'm like, I have to get her on my show, because I want you to introduce to our listening audience the wonderful aspect of what you explore. So you talk about a concept called sketchnoting. So to start out today, define that for us. What is that? That's a great question to start with, because I think I define it and redefine it every time I experience it with my students. And even if I'm using it during like professional learning or listening to a radio show like this or a podcast, but it's a kind of thinking that happens with a pen in hand or a stylus in hand um, when you are merging your thinking with what you read or what you listen to or what you're viewing and reformulating your thinking merged with the content to create a visual representation. So, um, you know, we could call it sketch notes, but there are a lot of other um, labels that are floating around out there that I hear like edu sketching or, uh, you know, we can even go back Marzano's research and think about just non-linguistic representation. I've heard people talk about visual marginalia. I mean, all of those things are great, you know, concepts to consider, but I, I'm just sort of in love with the name sketchnoting because it says what it is. It's so easy for us to use with students of all ages, and actually it's a term that was coined by a uh, sketchnoter extraordinaire uh, named Mike Rode, and, and it's Mike, R-O-H-D-E. Um, and he came up with the term some years ago, and I think it's just the right thing for us to use in the classroom. I completely agree that it's just the right term. I, I know that sometimes when I am sketchnoting, because I have become a huge fan of it and now do it myself, that I have a lot of people look at it and they say, oh, you're doodling, right? But it's not doodling. It's it's something so much more than that. And I love the term sketchnoting because I think that it takes it to that kind of cognitive level where we're actually using the pictures and the structure of what we design on the page to make and communicate something, which is which goes beyond doodling, in my estimation. Is that yes, right? And, yes, I agree. And I think, I think, you know, we can sort of differentiate the two, at least in my mind. I think about doodling, and, and by the way, I think that there's merit in what we might call, you know, quote-unquote, just doodling. Oh, yes, I agree. Um, and there's, <laughs> there's some research to support that, too. And I've had so much experience as a classroom teacher where I had – students who were doodling all the way around a graphic organizer or some kind of sheet we'd be working on. And sometimes I think I would wrongly assume that those students weren't paying attention, weren't engaged. But I see myself in those students, and I was that student um, years ago, and still find myself engaging in that kind of behavior where maybe it's just a random shape that we're repeating on a page or a phrase or a word that we're writing over and over. To me, those kinds of behaviors that we might think of as more mindless sometimes can even help us focus, keep us from daydreaming, those kinds of things. But what we're talking about more 
specifically when we're talking sketchnoting, would be, um, as I said earlier, like merging our thinking with the thinking of someone else. And so it's just as, you know, I, I think about reading comprehension and what it means to truly read something. It's that intersection of the text and what the reader brings to the page. With sketchnoting, it's really so much the same. It's that, uh, I think I say in the book, like an amalgamation of all of that together, and then it comes out on the page um, in a way that, that the sketchnoter can exercise choice as much as they want to. So shapes and colors and lines and where you might place something on the page, all of those things come into play, and it's really a, a mixture of thinking and design all together. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a, a lover of graphic organizers and use those so often in teacher professional learning and with students, but sometimes I'm guilty of presenting one of those for us to use um, where I've taken away some of the, the choice making for the thinker. And so with a sketch note, we can support kids at all different levels with this, but I think it offers up more choice. And as one of my students said to me not too long ago, you know, this is the first time I've ever cared about my notes. So I think all of that sort of works to our advantage in sketchnoting because the sketchnoter sort of feels in control of their own thinking and, and how it turns out to be on the page. I love how you describe it, that this is a, is a way to control thinking and to structure thinking in, in very interesting ways. You outline that in your new book, um, Ink and Ideas, just beautifully. And I'd really suggest to our listening audience, if they're interested in more of the nitty gritty of that, that they go and get that book because you break it down so beautifully in that book. But one of the things that I do love about what when you talk about this is that you mention that research and you mention the process that actually shows that there there's something really good happening here that, you know, kids start caring about their notes and kids start really thinking in different ways. So can you describe for us that kind of background, that kind of research that shows that this isn't just for fun or this isn't just something that's a cool idea? It's something that really is making a difference. Yeah. And I, you know, I explored that myself. I I knew that from a very young age when I was reading something, and it seems to me I'm, I'm more likely to want to sketch note when I'm reading informational text, uh, but I know it's probably not the same way for everyone, but that I, I craved having something to write on and having a pen or some colored pencils um, at my disposal because I felt like I, I somehow intuitively knew I needed to do that to create something on a page so that I would remember and focus. So I had all of these, just as we do as, as educators, like we have all these little inklings of what we think is true, or we might have these, these hunches, and, you know, without knowing what the research is behind it, it, they remain just that, just sort of like a feeling. Well, in the writing of Ink and Ideas, I spent the better part of the first year exploring what research says about memory and uh, about focus and about comprehension and how note-taking or the creation of something visual sort of plays into all of that. And I was amazed at how much is out there and how there has been research there for us to draw upon for a very long time. In my book, the first 
section of the book really goes into the why because it's you know always important for us to know the why behind something um, before we jump into the what or the how. And there's a a way that I even approach it with students, even young students, to let them know that there's a, a science or a research behind this. And I'll ask them questions like, you know, have you ever been reading something? And, you know, just a few minutes after you finish reading or you put it down, you realize to yourself, oh, my gosh, I don't remember a single thing I read. And kids will raise their hands. And if there are other teachers in the room, they'll raise their hands, and I will too. Um, I'll ask kids similarly, have you ever been reading something? And right in the middle of the process, you realize that you're not understanding it. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will admit that that happens to us. You know, sometimes for me on a daily basis, if I'm reading something like, you know, an insurance policy or a a cell phone bill or something like that, you know, I metacognition kicks in. I start to realize that, you know, I'm I'm having a breakdown in, in meaning. And then I'll also ask kids, you know, how many of you have had trouble focusing on something if you don't have a lot of background knowledge? Or maybe it's that you're just not interested in the topic or, or it could be other things like you're hungry or bored or you have anxiety. And kids and adults alike can recognize all of these behaviors in ourselves when we stop to think about it. And then I let kids know that sketch noting, thinking with a pen in your hand, can actually help combat some of these things. I want kids to know that not only, you know, have there been studies to show that this is helpful, but this is something that can improve um, their thinking, like right here and now and on an everyday basis. So the first 37 pages of my book are available at no cost at the publisher's website, um, and I'm so happy they chose that portion to share at no cost with anyone who's interested, because it focuses on specific studies that address all of those issues I just raised. For example, the dual coding theory that came to us back in the early 1970s, where Pavio tried to explain to us how powerful images are and how um, when we're holding on to something in our brains, we sometimes hold on to it linguistically with a word or phrase or set of words, but we also are likely to hold on to something meaningful with images, colors, shapes, et cetera. And when we can, you know, latch on to a concept or an idea and code it in two ways, um, then we're far more likely to remember it and remember it longer. And so just reading a study like that, that's, you know, it's not brand new to us or like, you know, just some like revelatory uh, concept that, that is just being published. Like we've had this work for a long time. It's just I wasn't familiar with it. And even though I, you know, had beliefs and, like I said, hunches, Uh, about visual thinking and how it could be beneficial. It wasn't until I really started digging in and creating the draft of this manuscript that I realized how much research was out there. So we might look all the way back to the 1970s. We could also look at studies that are very recent. Um, One study I cite is the Mueller and Oppenheimer study where, um, and they're from the University of Waterloo. And this was 2016. They they um, labeled this behavior, or I should say outcome, I guess, um, of their study, the drawing effect. 
they did a series of experiments. They were looking at um, the benefits of drawing to just remember things. And they found that, and this is the part that I think is so important and really just combats the misconception that we might have about sketchnoting, especially in teachers. That is that the benefits of drawing or sketching are present even if you don't have uh, what you might call a visual artistic talent. This is just amazingly fascinating, and I am so I, I'm so appreciative of your passion for this, and and I hope that this passion and this little you know scope that you've given us of how wonderful sketch noting is has kind of engaged the passion of our listening audience, and and they want to explore more. It's it really is a powerful powerful way to encode things and to learn things. I can be a you know a personal testament to this, that, that after I learned from you how to do this, I've started doing it in my life and it really does make a difference. So whether you believe in the research or your passion or my experience, um, let's maybe all go out there and, and start exploring a little bit more about sketchnoting. Thank you so much, Tani. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. A pleasure. Tani McGregor is an educator, author, and advocate for sketchnoting. Next, we present a holiday-themed story time. This month, we will read along with snippets from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Today is the first selection, and we will meet, along with Mr. Scrooge, the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past. The hour itself, said Scrooge triumphantly, and nothing else. He spake before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand, not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. And Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am now to you. And I'm standing in the spirit at your elbow. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? asked Scrooge. I am. The voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if instead of being so close beside him, it were at a distance. Who and what are you? Scrooge demanded. I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? inquired Scrooge, observant of its dwarfish stature. No, your past. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. Not a vestige of it was to be seen. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Good heaven, said Scrooge, clasping his hands together as he looked about him. I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. These are but the shadows of things that have been, said the ghost. They have no consciousness of us. The jokin' travelers came on, and as they came, Scrooge knew and named them every one. Why was he rejoiced beyond all bounds to see them? Why did his cold eye glisten and his heart leap up as they went past? Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas as they parted at crossroads and byways for their several homes? 
What was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas. What good had it ever done to him? The school is not quite deserted, said the ghost. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Scrooge said he knew it, and he sobbed. That's one ghost down, but you know there's more to come. Keep tuning in all month long for more from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Mathematics. Sometimes it seems like mission impossible. How can we help our children to accept the challenge of math and even excel in it? We're in studio today with Dr. Elisa Belliston, a previous elementary mathematics teacher and current mathematics professor here at BYU. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You have such wonderful insights into math and especially math for younger children. So to start off today, tell us a little bit about why you think it's important that particularly our youngest children start learning some math literacies or math skills even from the very beginning. Um, I think that for me, it's about a mindset from the beginning. It's about a growth mindset. It's about a mindset of um, allowing kiddos to explore and um, understanding that there's lots of different math smarts and that mistakes are okay. We want our kiddos to make mistakes and to learn from their lived experiences. So having children have lots of opportunities to play mathematically and to draw from their community and from their lived experiences to develop that mathematical thinking. Many of us don't know that we actually come with innate mathematical ways of knowing. There's been studies that have shown that when infants are shown pictures of two objects and then it's covered up and then two more objects and then it's covered up and then three objects, they become startled. They're like, oh, there's something different here. And so there's that beginning natural inclination for understanding number and trying to make sense of the world. A lot of things that we ask of young children, if we do it in a way that's appropriate and that builds conceptual understanding, that can support them when they get older in saying understanding algebra. For instance, there's the the equal sign. And for many of our young children, they think that when they see that symbol of the equal sign, it means write the answer, right? And sometimes... That's the fault of the adults in their lives. They say three plus four equals, now write the answer. And in reality, what the equal sign means is that the the same as. So it's a balancing of both sides. And so young children might not understand like seven equals three plus four, okay? That we want to balance what's on one side and what's on the other side. And when kiddos grow up or when our children grow up and go to um, an algebra class where, oh, all of a sudden there's letters involved with these numbers and you're asking me to do what with this equal sign and not having that understanding of the equal sign as being the same as, as opposed to do something here, Mm. is a real foundation that can um, 
either support kiddos when when they're older or be a stumbling block if they have been taught in a way to say that the equal sign means do this now. Write down this answer. That seems like it's very important then for us as adults and concerned adults to have our own misconceptions about math and about how we interact with math not color how we're engaging with our children with it. And and I guess that that is kind of scary to me, right? Because I I don't have a very strong relationship with complex math and and I can see how that would totally color that. So how do we make that easier for us, particularly as adults who might have come into this with a little trepidation or saying, you know, once my kids get past first grade, I'm not going to be able to help them with their math. (laughs) How do we help those feelings that we have as adults not Mm -hmm. get in the way of helping our kids really find these mathematical understandings for themselves? Yes. One thing that I feel like is really important is what I'm hearing you talk about is the mathematics identity of many of the adults in our country and that it's okay, in quotes, right, in air quotes, it's okay to say, like, I'm just not good at math. However, we wouldn't find it socially acceptable to say, oh, I'm just not good at reading. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I personally sat through many teacher conferences where parents would just say, oh, I'm not good at math, so I don't expect her to be good at math, or I don't expect my him to be good at math. And that's like the most disheartening thing for me <laughs> as a lover yes. of mathematics because yeah. um, parents are lowering that bar for yeah. those kiddos. And I understand that 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 can be really ingrained and that a lot of people do have um, almost traumatic experiences with mathematics as young children, and that carries over into adulthood. But if I could just change one thing about the the paradigm, yes, yes. Right? please like, do. Tell us. What like, should we change? <laughs> hold on to that like negative talk about like, oh, she's just not good at math. Because in countries where... Children are expected to be good at math. They all are. They rise to the occasion. And um, and so if we can change that narrative around mathematics and change um, what we're telling our children about mathematics as teachers, as um, aunts and uncles, as parents, um, as a society in general, and get excited about data science and um, the things that we can learn uh, through mathematics, that's a really important thing to support kiddos with their own personal mathematics identities. And I think another thing is that we're asking teachers to ask kids to be more flexible in their thinking. It's not just do it this way, monkey see, monkey do, right? And many of us um, in our generation were taught that way. We were taught mathematics like, hey, students, this is what we're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. Now go do it for 20 minutes. And in today's world and the world of the Common Core, um, we're asking students to explain their thinking around their mathematics, to come up with multiple ways to solve a problem and to make sense of it and to be able to justify not just with here's an example of why this works, but this works all the time because, and then giving that justification. And so we're bringing in that creative component to have conceptual understanding so that it's 
if a student can't remember an algorithm in the future, they have a way to get to it. And because I know, I mean, sometimes I'm like, oh, what's the formula for that? And oh, well, okay. You know, yeah. and you just yeah, kind of yeah. think through it, right? And then and then you can get to it. Or, you know, we uh, Google it. But <laughs> That's what I always right? do, too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very natural thing. But sometimes those, um, you know, we're not in a space where we have access to that or in a testing situation where, oh, I don't remember this, but I have confidence because I've done it in the past where I've tried a couple different ways and I've figured it out myself. Yeah. You know, that, that's always been interesting to me because when I think about mathematics done at the highest levels, and this would be, you know, the the scientist level, right, where they're, where they're creating new math essentially, right? It really is a creative endeavor. And what they're doing is creating these formulas. And I think we've actually done a disservice to math as a discipline and to our kids when we don't think of it as a creative problem-solving discipline. As we, If we think of about it as a plug-and-play kind of, you know, you plug it in and this, this comes out the other end and that's the only way to get there. Because what we want them to be, I would think, is these kind of creative thinkers who are going to press the future and make the technology of the future and be at the jobs that don't exist yet in the future. And that's the way that kind of creative thinking of math is going to be the way that's going to get us there. I mean, do you agree with that? I completely agree with that. And exactly, exactly, is that the jobs that these kiddos are going to be doing in the future, they don't exist. We don't know what we're preparing them for. And um, and I'm thinking about a little narrative that I read about Albert Einstein recently on how, like, he'd think about something and if it didn't come to him, he'd put it on the shelf, right? And then he'd come back to it. And it wasn't this process of, like, immediate ahas, but that it was an ongoing journey, right? And that's how it is with our kiddos. There might be something that they leave one afternoon just going, I just didn't understand that. And it kind of marinates while they're sleeping. And then the next day, oh, it suddenly makes sense. And they're able to come up with different ways. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I I think building that identity is more helpful that way, right? When we say, oh, you're a good problem solver or, oh, how creative. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of words tend to have less baggage, I think, with them than sometimes, you know, oh, you're good at math, right? Yes. Yes. And we we see ourselves kind of in a broader context as well. As we close up our conversation today, describe to me one or two things that you think if you were the empress of math in the world and could change anything that we're doing in schools or in homes, what would be a couple of those tips that you would say, okay, Mm -hmm. starting today, if we start doing this, we're going to end up at a better place with with stronger, more creative problem solvers Mm -hmm. and better students with math identities than we are today? Yes. So two things quickly come to mind. One thing is an activity called counting collections that can be done with our littles, our pre-kindergarten, kindergarten first, sometimes second graders need it. And sometimes older kids need it if they didn't get it as younger kids. And that's just having a collection of 
a whole bunch of seashells or a whole bunch of coins or a whole bunch of caps off of water bottles. It doesn't have to be something that we go and spend money on and having children practice their counting, right? So it might be counting to 20. It might be counting to 100. But then when we get into bigger counting collections, they can count by twos. They can count by fives. They can count by tens. And that develops a strong number sense of what it means to be working in a base 10 um, number system, which we do. And um, so that would be my number one thing is get those little ones counting and give them opportunities to count in multiple different ways and to to think about counting in lots of ways. The other thing that it kind of goes along with everything that I've been talking about is, but historically, people, if you ask someone, what, what does it mean to be good at math? They'll say to be fast and accurate, right? And of course, we want people to be fast and accurate, but that's not the only thing, right? And so many people's mathematics identities have been, oh, I don't want to say destroyed because that feels like such a harsh yeah. word. But like these time, I would say get rid of time tests. Like I am not a fan of time tests because that only taps into those two math smarts. Right? And so it's coming back to having lots of different ways to be math smart. I thought of multiple ways. I used a picture. I used manipulatives. And um, I asked good questions to understand the problem. And so and, – and, and you affirmed this earlier. But really um, – really finding the qualities that our children as mathematicians possess as opposed to just being fast and accurate. I love that. I think, you know, it's easier than we think sometimes yes. just counting and really looking at what the multiplicity of skills out there that are available and helping mm -hmm. our children tap into them are are really, you know, simple things we can do that will make big, big impact. Thank you so much. Thank you. Elisa Belliston is a professor in mathematics teacher education at BYU. Now let's turn it over to our student producer, Natalie Anderson, so she can introduce another segment you will hear this month on Worlds Awaiting. As the leaves fall from the trees and the air becomes chill, we all know that the holidays are soon to come upon us. Each family has their own traditions. Some wait until after Thanksgiving to even think about Christmas, and others start celebrating on November 1st. No matter when or how you celebrate, you have certain traditions that you cherish, and many of those traditions have roots in our heritages from around the world. So, in the spirit of the German Advent, we at Worlds Awaiting bring you holiday traditions from around the world. This week, we start in Europe. In Germany, the celebration starts long before December 25th. Christmas is called Weihnachten, and the celebrations leading up to it start on the first Sunday of December. This is called Advent. Every Sunday leading up to Christmas, they light a candle on a wreath called an Adventskranz. This has evolved into the Advents calendar. Every day, the children can open a door on the calendar and find a chocolate treat. On the fifth day of December, the children prepare for St. Nicholas, or the Weihnachtsmann. They place their shoes outside their doors, and if they've been good, St. Nicholas will place sweets and small toys in their shoes. After all, it is not Santa Claus or St. Nicholas who brings gifts on Christmas. It is the Christkind, or the Christ child himself. 
During the Christmas season, it is very common to have Weihnachts marks or Christmas markets where treats and gifts can be purchased. Each market will choose a child from the community to represent the Christ child and give gifts during the festivals leading up to Christmas Eve, when the true Christ child will come to give gifts. To prepare for the Christkind, they set up their Christmas tree on Christmas Eve, exchange some gifts, and then go to mass. During the night, the Christkind comes and leaves presents. When the children hear the bell ring, they know he has come. In Spain, they begin preparations at the beginning of the month as well. During the weeks leading up to Christmas, they set up elaborate nativity scenes called Belens. Many homes create these Christmas scenes with more than just a stable and the traditional figures. Sometimes entire villages will be constructed. Larger ones are placed in shop windows. In the region of Catalonia, children will bring in a small log called Cacotillo. During the month of December, they will take care of the log by placing a blanket on it and feeding it bread, dried fruit, and orange peels. On Christmas Day, they hit the log and sing a special song. When they remove the blanket, there's candy and small treats for them. Papa Noel, their version of Santa Claus, brings gifts for them on Christmas Eve. However, they also have a different giver of gifts. On January 5th, the three wise men parade through the streets throwing candy to the children. When the children return home, they place their shoes out and on January 6th, or Three Kings Day, they find presents inside of them. In Sweden, they begin with St. Lucy's Day, or the 13th of December. On this day, the oldest daughter in the family dresses up as St. Lucy, wearing a white robe with a red sash and a crown of greenery with nine lighted candles around it. She wakes up her family singing songs and feeds them breakfast. Their Santa Claus is called Yultomta, or Tomta, and he comes on Christmas Eve to deliver presents to the children who have been good during the year. In early traditions, it is said that he is a gnome that watches over the house during the whole year. On Christmas Eve, the children must leave out a bowl of porridge for him. If there isn't one, then he won't deliver the presents. Another time-honored tradition is writing a rhyme on the wrapping paper of each present, hinting at the contents without being too specific. The Italians start their Christmas traditions on the 8th of December, or the Day of Immaculate Conception. This is when they put up all of their Christmas decorations in preparation for the big day. Presents are brought on Christmas Day either by Babbo Natale, which is their version of Santa Claus, or by the Christ Child. On the 6th of January, the Christmas witch, known as La Bafana, brings small treats and gifts for the good children, or bags of ashes for the bad. La Bafana is said to have traveled with the three wise men on the way to the Christ Child. There were so many traditions from Europe that we couldn't talk about all of them. Join us next week for the next feature of the Advent when we'll talk about Christmas traditions from Asia. What are your Christmas traditions? We love speaking to authors here at Worlds Awaiting. Recently, Megan Andrus of the World's Awaiting team had the privilege of sitting down with Lauren Wolk at a symposium on books for young readers. She asked Lauren about her journey to becoming an author and how she comes up with ideas for her books. Let's listen in. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for being with us today. Um, So the first question we have for you is, what got you interested in writing children's literature? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I confess I wasn't actually interested in writing children's literature. I wasn't disinterested. I just wasn't interested. I was interested in writing books. And I didn't think too much about what age my audience might be. But I I confess, I started off writing books for adults, and I thought that was my world. And then I wrote Wolf Hollow, and my agent said, oh, this is a great book for young readers. And I said, what are you talking about? And he (laughs) said, no, think about it. Annabelle's 12, and 
it's a, it's a book that might resonate with young readers, and I was thrilled. I really, as soon as I got my head around that, I was so happy because I remembered the impact that books had had on me when I was young, and I thought if there's even the slightest chance that anything I write might end up having an impact on the life of a young person, I will have fulfilled my goal as a writer. So um, my agent was then able to find me a publisher very quickly, and I got a two-book deal, and both books were for young readers. Mm -hmm. So the second one, Beyond the Bright Sea, I, I wrote again as a book. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so at least, at least young people will be reading this, and maybe others as well. Mm -hmm. And I watched carefully to make sure that didn't change me as a writer. Um, the editor I chose for Wolf Hollow, I chose largely because she did not want me to dumb it down, simplify it, pablumize it, disnify it, or anything else right. to make it for kids, because mm -hmm. I think kids are a whole lot smarter than people give them credit for, and wiser too. And also, I learned about the world, and I learned my vocabulary from reading challenging books. So I was very happy when she didn't want me to make it, to juvenilize it, if that's a word. Okay. And, um, and then the next book, Beyond the Bright Sea, sort of just came out the way it came out, and it just happened to be okay for that audience as well. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, what was your inspiration for Wolf Hollow? Uh, my mother grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, and I spent a lot of time on that farm. She told me stories about her youth there, and uh, I loved the place. And we had lots and lots of pictures from the 40s when she was a child there. And all that combined to make a pretty cool sort of body of inspiration. But it wasn't until she wrote down some of her childhood memories in a little memoir mm -hmm. just for the family and gave it around to us, and I read it, that I realized that it had the makings of a really strong novel. Not the exact um, episodes or people, but just the flavor of it and, and the various elements. They seemed to lend themselves to a really interesting story, so I suggested she write a novel. She's not a novelist, so she, she sort of gave it an attempt and then, and then gave up, and I said, well, I'm going to write a book inspired by your life, not about your life, but inspired by your life. And so I did. I, um, I never want to know what's going to happen in a book before it happens. I don't plot it out. I don't decide in, a, in um, advance about my characters. I start with setting, and I just let it go from there. So the setting was very strongly autobiographical. It was that family farm, but the rest of it was sort of just plunking down people inspired by my family and then letting them lead me into an adventure. Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. That's very cool. Um, so you mentioned that you gleaned a lot of your knowledge from books that you read growing up. What are some of your favorites that you read growing oh, up? That's so funny because I'm making a speech tonight and it's about the book that most oh, influenced awesome. me because I get this question all the time. And it, it's impossible to answer um, because there were so many books that influenced me. But um, if you go way back to the beginning, the book that still strikes a chord, rings a bell, you know, takes me back to my, really my infancy in a wonderful way is Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown and illustrated by Clement Hurd. My parents read to me every single night and that was a book they read to me over and over and over again. And it's the song, it's a song, it's a poem, it's, it's a story, and of course with the illustrations mixed in, it's a whole world. It's the great green room where I wanted to spend time as a child. And it taught me a lot about writing because of what it did to me as a reader, as a listener. It drew me in so strongly that I was in that room with that bunny and that bowl full of mush and that quiet old lady whispering hush. 
I wanted to be able to do that, to pull readers into whatever I had created. I mean, really pull them in, heart and soul. And um, so every book I read thereafter or every book that was read to me thereafter, that's what I was looking for, that kind of engagement. And when I sat down to write, that was my goal, that kind of thorough engagement. Awesome. So you mentioned that you're a little new to the children's literature world as far as writing goes. Um, What have you found to be challenging about writing children's literature for a modern audience? The adults. The adults tend to make rules and pronouncements and and decide things about what kids should or shouldn't have, what they should or shouldn't like, what's good or bad for them. And we've always done that, you know. But I really think we underestimate kids. I think we need to offer them a very diverse body of literature and let them choose. I think you guide them, you strongly encourage them, but in the end, everyone's different and we all get what we need from art. Um, we all react to it differently. So um, what your, I guess your question was about the challenges of writing for a younger audience. It, it's mostly avoiding what I call monkey mind, which is all the other stuff outside of the writing process, outside of the product, outside of the work. And um, if I start to hear the editor, the agent, the, the, the reviewer sitting on my shoulder whispering things in my ear, I can't write. So it's a it's a real it was always a challenge, but it was it's a bigger challenge now writing for children because I think, for instance, I'll give you an example. A lot of people say Wolf Hall is too dark for kids. I think that's hooey. I think kids are, first of all, exposed to all kinds of darkness in this world. The internet and and other factors have opened up the world to children in ways that weren't true when I was a child. I my parents made me watch the news every night, so I knew Vietnam, and and other things happening in the world because they didn't believe I should be shielded from darkness. But there was not the blitz of horror that is coming at kids from all angles all the time now. In my opinion, if you offer them books that treat them with respect and assume that they are wiser and smarter than most adults think they are, you give them this material, you perhaps inspire them in some ways in how to deal with that darkness, what their role in the world is, how to stand up to injustice, how to have a voice, how to believe in yourself, not to feel small. And so when people say Wolf Hall is a little dark for kids, I say bring it on. They need to have serious literature to mix in with all the other work that is great and funny and the fantasies, all the dragons and witches and everything else are fantastic. But there has to be a range of material available to them. And we have to let them choose. And so... um, uh, that's how I feel about it. I read a lot of dark things when I was a kid. They taught me a lot about human beings, about our species, about our world. And they equipped me for how to deal with that world when I got a little older. So I, I don't think darkness is anything to fear, but I do think it's important to be the light, be your own light in the universe, you know, as an antidote to that darkness. Very well said. I totally agree. Thank you. What advice do you have for young writers who aspire to be published one day? Oh, so that's a great question because of this, that tag at the end, who aspire to be published one day. First of all, forget that part. Just, just like a weed, rip it right out of the garden that you are. If you want to write, write. It, don't, don't think of it as, I want to be a writer. You are a writer. You are a writer. So writers write. 
So what should you do? You should write and you should read. Every single day you should read and you should write. Now, I write poetry, I write novels, I write stories, I, I write thoughts, musings, whatever. I haven't written a novel since I turned my last one in in February because I'm waiting for my editor's notes on it so that I can revise it. And I want to take care of that before I start a new book. I haven't been writing very much of anything, therefore, and I feel like I have a hole in my heart. I feel bereft. I feel small. I feel pale. I feel insignificant when I'm not writing. So my advice to young writers or aspiring writers is if you're a writer, think of yourself that way. If you're a writer, you should be writing. And if you want to be a better writer, you should be reading. The good stuff will teach you how to be a better writer. The bad stuff will teach you how to be a better writer. All of it's going to teach you how to be a better writer. And then start showing your work to other people you trust. And don't be afraid of revision. Revision is good for the soul. It's a very creative process. It's critical if you want to be a better writer. And I don't have much patience with ego. and like, oh, this is good enough. I'm ready to move on. It's work. It's really hard work to be a writer. It's very hard work. And so embrace that. Put yourself just at the desk with your work and do it every day. And if you write a good enough book, you'll get published. (laughs) So let that come later. Very true. Thank you. That's great advice. For our last question, do you have any upcoming projects or things that you're working on right now? Oh, boy, I do. That novel I was just talking about, as soon as my editor... I just, I just sent her an email at lunch. I was like, I need to know. She's, she herself says she moves at a glacial pace, and it's true. So when she um, comes back to me with her notes, I'm going to jump fully into the revision process of the new book I have. And I want to start a new one as soon after that as I can. But I'm an artist, too, and I'm involved in making some art for various projects, which is very therapeutic. Working with the hands is really, really good for me, and it's good for my writer's mind, because when I'm working with my hands, it lubricates my brain, and it's all good. So it's either visual art or written art. And I run, I have a full-time job running a cultural center, so I'm very busy uh, helping other artists make a living and make work. So, um, and I plan to do some more traveling. This writer's life has sent me around the world, which is great fun. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we look forward to seeing some more good stuff from you. Thanks so so much much. for joining us today. Thank you. Lauren Wolk is a poet, artist, and author of the award-winning book Wolf Hollow. The holidays mean something different to everyone. So today from the librarian's table, we will offer two Hanukkah-themed book reviews. Pre-service teacher Julie Anderson will take a look at Oscar and the Eight Blessings. And local librarian Jess Verzello will talk about Runaway Dreidel. I'm Julie Anderson, and I am going to be talking about Oscar and the Eight Blessings by Richard and Tanya Simon, illustrated by Mark Siegel. On Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, Oscar's mother and father put him on a ship to America. They sent him with nothing but an address and a picture of his Aunt Esther, who he had never before met. His father's last words to him were, Oscar, even in bad times, people can be good. You have to look for the blessings. Oscar arrived in New York on the seventh day of Hanukkah, which was also Christmas Eve. He had to walk 100 blocks down Broadway to find his aunt's house before sundown, when his Aunt Esther would be lighting the menorah. He was tired, hungry, cold, and alone as he started his journey to find his aunt. 
Along the way, he saw an old woman feeding some pigeons. She gave him some bread so that he could help her feed them. When he ate the bread that was meant for the pigeons because he was starving, the old woman gave him a small loaf of bread that gave him the strength to carry on. As Oscar continued his journey, he stopped at a newsstand full of comics. He picked up a Superman comic and read about a man who had super strength and could stop bullets. He put the comic book back when he realized he didn't have money to pay for it. The newsstand man had compassion for him and gave it back as a Christmas gift. At this point, Oscar remembered that his father told him about looking for blessings, and it was easier for him to see all the good in the world around him. He had his first conversation in America by whistling back and forth with Count Basie outside of Carnegie Hall. He had a quick run-in with Mrs. Roosevelt, who let him pass by in front of her when a policeman tried to stop him. Oscar also walked by a park where a group of boys were having a snowball fight. When a boy slipped, Oscar pretended to be like Superman from his new comic book and leaped to catch the boys he fell. The boy noticed Oscar's cold hands and gave him the mittens he was wearing. Grateful for the warmth of his mittens, Oscar gave the boy his comic book as a gift in return. Overall, there were eight blessings that Oscar experienced as he walked up Broadway to find his Aunt Esther, the last and most important one being how he found her. It was getting dark, so Oscar started to run. He passed by a woman humming a familiar Jewish tune when he suddenly heard the name of his father. He stopped running and turned to see that the woman was his aunt who had mistaken Oscar for his father. The story ends as Oscar and his Aunt Esther embrace in tears. This is a beautiful children's book. There isn't a lot of text, but the story is expanded through paneled illustrations. The pictures portray all the emotions of a young boy walking through New York City by himself. Loneliness, fear, curiosity, surprise, hope, and happiness. There is also a map of Manhattan from December 1938 in the back of the book. There is a dotted red line that traces Oscar's footsteps, so readers can see exactly where he traveled along the journey. This book can be used for young readers as a gentle introduction to the Holocaust by explaining what happened on the night of broken glass and how it was important for Oscar's parents to send him away to safety. Children can be more prepared for more difficult conversations about other related events that happened during World War II. This book can also be used as a way to teach children the importance of looking for the good around us in whatever situations we find ourselves in. While they might not have the same experiences as a young Jewish refugee walking in the streets of Manhattan, they can all interact with people in positive ways along the paths and their own individual journeys. Runaway Dreidel by Lislea Newman and illustrated by Kirsten Brooker. This is a wonderful, whimsical story of a little boy, a little Jewish boy who has a new dreidel. And he spins it, but the dreidel goes out of control. It spins all through the house, down the street, out of the neighborhood, until it, you know, goes across the sky and ends up as a star that they all, that the family dances around. And it's really beautiful. It brings an awareness of the Hanukkah tradition and Jewish culture in a really beautiful way. It's also very rhythmic as it's set to the tune of Twas the Night Before Christmas. And so kids reading this book will easily latch on to the rhyme and the rhythm of it and be able to sing along and transfer this universal tune and melody over to a new culture and a new tradition as they're learning about Hanukkah. What I really love about this book is its introduction to different 
foods and using Yiddish terms and how much family there is involved in the celebration, how they're all running after the dreidel and, and trying to help this little boy. Just to give you an idea of, of what it sounds like, one line says, At home we ate latkes and lit the menorah, and then just for fun we all danced the hora. And it has this beautiful illustrated scene. Kirsten Brooker did a wonderful job of using oil paints and, and cut paper and and just just the celebration and this feeling of joy and light. You know, we might have different traditions from people around us, but ultimately we're all celebrating this beautiful time of the season of giving, of celebrating with our families, of spending time together and really how alike we are rather than our differences. I'd like to thank Julie and Jess for their reviews around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. First, we talked with Tani McGregor about a new way to take notes. Then, Elisa Belliston shared her views on engaging our students with math. Our last guest was author Lauren Wolk, who talked about her books. We also had a couple of holiday features. Keep tuning in. There's more to come all month long. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.